Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This audio program may contain descriptions of violence and topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Please listen with caution. Do you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? It's fear. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. Just in time for that. <laughs> we are recording just in time for that. There's Why so are you much... stop touching your boobs so much? It's just they're right there. I don't touch mine. Look, mine are my hands are behind my back like a military officer. You are. There's just way too formal <laughs> like for a lady. this proceeding. Um so I I won't curtsy then. <laughs> no, don't. Um you ever like rest your boobs on a table when you're like doing I do. something? Yeah, because yeah. they're so heavy. They're you know? so heavy. I used to do it at school all the time, like on the desk. I'd just be like, oh yeah, <sighs> yeah. Just give yourself a nice break. I can't you know? wait till they dangle far enough where I can just throw them over my shoulder. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that'll be the day. <laughs> you can whip them at things. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna teach them to like catch things. You yeah, know? Like, exactly. Like, instead of getting stuff with your feet, like a monkey, like, yeah, just I'll just grab it with my boobies. Yeah, it just absorbs mm-hmm. into the boob and yeah. retracts. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait for that day. <sighs> Me either. When are we oh going to evolve to do that? I don't know. You would think we would have already. I know, right? You would have think we would have evolved uh, to not get cancer, too, but. Oh, no. The cancer is winning. Yeah. yeah. Well, because no one wants to solve cancer, because then the. The drug don't. companies don't. <laughs> and don't. the birds work for the bourgeoisie. We all know yes. everything I've just said is true. We do. We know this. Um, so we have some criminal news to get into. Oh, yes, Criminal Minds Evolution. It yes. has been rebooted. I did. Did you see on TikTok that episode of um? There was just a clip from an episode of Law and Order SVU. Mariska Hargitay is like. You were at a gay bar, and the guy's like, "What? Oh, yeah, no, it's not a gay bar." And she goes, "She goes, how do you know that?" And he goes, "Well, there was, there was hockey on hockey TV." And, TV. <laughs> and she was goes, anyone "Was watching? anyone watching?" <laughs> <laughs> I have seen that. It's very funny. Um, okay, so the University of Idaho students yes. in uh, Moscow—it's Moscow. Moscow. I think, no, it's, I think Moscow. it's Moscow. Like Is it? the city? Okay, so we talked about that a little bit. Two times ago. Yeah. So, an arrest been has been potentially made. potentially solved. Yes. A criminal complaint was filed against Brian Koberger, um, a 28-year-old. He was charged with four counts of murder in the first degree and also felony burglary. 
So you stole something. I guess. Even breaking though, and entering? Yeah, that, it seems more breaking and entering. I guess it depends on the burglary, state and what bur- burglary is. Yeah, it because does, it could be for breaking into the house. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, yeah. I don't really know what the difference is. So they kind of narrowed it down after they had identified a white Hyundai Elantra. Mm-hmm. They had connected this vehicle to the killings. And then his DNA was matched yes. to, to like material evidence. Or to evidence. DNA. Yeah. yeah. Which we don't know what the DNA is yet. So no. So that'll be interesting to it find out. It just says it was matched to genetic material recovered right. at the off-campus So it could be something strong, like blood or semen. It could be something less strong, like hair or touch DNA. Yeah. We're, we're not really sure. I would say it's probably blood because with a stabbing like that, there's a lot of uh, and slippage, slippage. Mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. the blade. So a lot of people sustain well, injuries. Well, he did, and the murder weapon wasn't ever found, right? So No, but they know what it steal... was. It was like a hunting knife. It was this type right. of knife, yeah. So maybe he stole that, and that's why he's booked with burglary. <laughs> that would be funny. <laughs> Not funny, haha. But, uh, you know. Um, yeah. So apparently they have matched his DNA through a public database yeah like to find ancestry. his family members yeah, yeah which ah uh, that's gonna be an awkward family reunion mm, i don't think he's going to well it. he's not but yeah. they are so he had driven cross country mm-hmm. in the elantra to his parents house in pennsylvania right. now this man brian koberger is a graduate student and he attends school in Washington State. Right. I wonder if he did it so that... So he drives... So he's in Idaho. He kills them. He drives back to Washington to attend the last few weeks of classes. Then mm-hmm. he chooses to drive all the way to Pennsylvania. Yeah. I wonder if he did it thinking that way if people see a white... Like if they see, you know, the white Elantra and then someone's like, oh, well, you have a white Elantra and it was seen in the area or whatever, he could be like, oh, no, well, a few weeks later, I was driving home for Christmas. You're probably just remembering that kind of, yeah, you know, giving an excuse of why his car would have been in that area ever Mm -hmm. so that he could be like, oh, well, if my car was seen, it must have been the week after when I drove home, you know. Mm -hmm. Something that's very interesting about this is that Koberger's uh, area of study is actually criminal justice. Mm -hmm. And he was a Reddit poster. He posted on Reddit. And there was one post that's been making the rounds now where he was seeking participants for a research project about, how do you put it? He put it, quote, to understand how emotions and psychological traits influence decision making when committing a crime. Hmm. Um, Ironic, but... I mean, if you think about it, who's better to go to school for criminal justice than a criminal? Yeah. Well, and like your dad had said, maybe he was doing it. He was like, oh, I'm going to do it to see if I can get away with it. Like, I'm going to plan the perfect crime. And then he did it. And just because of that, because had there not been DNA in the system. Yeah. We still wouldn't know who this guy is. I had heard I can't. I'm not finding anything to confirm it, but I had heard that there was possibly some connection between Koberger and one of the victim's older siblings. They may yeah, have known each other. Yeah, but I don't think it was particularly like that close. That close? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a very strange case. Yeah. And I guess we'll see as it unfolds what the connection was there. Right. But also, it's like, 
What, do you think he was going to get extra credit for mur- for this murder? I don't know what, and I also don't know why he didn't kill everyone in the house. Maybe he didn't know no. about the other mm-hmm. ones. But he knew about four people, which is a lot. Well, he drove them home. That's Did what he? they believe. That's why they were interested in the Honda Elantra, because they oh. that's the car that drove them all home. Okay, because I thought they had taken an Uber. No, they had driven. So at first, the first thing they were saying that they probably had a ride home they might have ordered an uber or whatever but they have no orders for them like there's no okay that's what they said at first and then they were like okay we're interested in this honda elantra we believe Mm. that's the car that drove them home we don't know if they're it's related to the case or not but if you have any tips so they think he drove them home and either i don't know if they invited him in like hey you're cool come party with us or if he just then waited outside until they went to bed and he only knew so they come home the boys come home or you know however it was split up yeah uh and and he sees them all four of them and so he just kills all four of them thinking those are the only people in the house in the house yeah and because no one else woke up he didn't have any reason to believe that they weren't the only people in the home mhm and if he did, in fact, know one of them, their older brothers, it might even have been more of a reason for them to get in the car and also be like, hey, do you want to come in for a beer? Hey, you seem yeah. cool. Why don't we go watch a movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had said that the Hyundai Elantra was in the, quote, immediate area mm-hmm. of the crime scene. I'm trying to see, like, when they found out that he had driven them home. Oh, that I don't know. I just saw that on the news, like, Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. On CNN, I think, but I'm not sure. And they were saying that he had driven them home. Yeah. Or they suspect him to have driven them home, I guess. Because basically, they know that they were driven home from where they were, that the Elantra was in the area when Mm -hmm. they were around the time when they were getting dropped off. And so I think they just kind of made the connection that oh, okay. he was then probably maybe. the one. I don't think they had, like, video evidence or whatever. I think they were making the connection that he was the one who drove them home because they had to be driven home from somewhere, mm-hmm. and the car was in the area around okay. the drop-off time. But I I'm mean, not sure. yeah, they probably know, and they're not telling Yes, us they're yet. being very secretive, which makes me think that there is more to it. Yeah. More involvement, someone else is involved, something. Yeah. Well, we'll find out because it's still unfolding. We still have a trial and yeah. all of that going on. And who on. knows, if there is someone else involved, he might flip on them for a lesser deal or a better mm-hmm. prison. Or yeah. Who knows? We'll see. Also, I don't think we mentioned this before, but the boy in the box has been identified. We did. did we talk about the boy but in the I box? But I don't know if it came out yet. I think that was in our Christmas okay. one. Okay. Well, but we won't. I why do um have I blacked that entire episode out? Because I was very I was very excited about the boy in the box. I felt like there was something else. Uh, do we have an update on uh, on John Benet Sh- Ramsey? Not yet. Shaquella, I don't think so. Shaquella Robinson. So they yeah when we last talked about it they had issued a warrant for her friend. For those who don't remember, this is the young woman who was killed in Mexico Yes, when she was on vacation with her friends. And then the video came out of her friend beating her mm-hmm. in their, like, rented apartment, yeah. hotel room, whatever. Uh, and the friends had claimed that she had died of alcohol poisoning. 
But the coroner report stated that her neck was actually broken. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, an arrest warrant was issued. But besides that, we don't really have much. That's what we had last time, too. Yeah. Yeah. Just not a lot of information. Um, It's the holidays. (sighs) I know. You'd think more crimes would be committed. (laughs) Yeah. Well, criminals take off. They want to see their family. They do. Even they need a break, right? Yeah. Yeah, Other than the wet bandits. (laughs) (laughs) I love that that's the name. Or the sticky bandits. That's them in the second one. Yes, it's true. Oh, the wet bandits. What a terrible name. They're wet with anticipation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, but today, I think we're taking a little bit of a break from the really fucking depressing yeah, mine's not that depressing. Yeah, I'm excited to hear yours. I cannot remember who went first last time. Do you want to go first? I'll go first if you'd okay. like. I want to go. You want to prefer? You prefer that? I okay. prefer last, so I can finish it up with my. Okay, a grand finale. Yeah. Sorry, my stop making noises. It's like in that SpongeBob episode. It's so bad. Where it's the boots are squeaking, and then he has to eat the boots. But then yes. every time he walks, they squeak, squeaks. So we're talking about um we're. Talking about robberies. Yes. And Reppy actually suggested this topic because she found out about a very interesting case. Um, I suggested crimes of the century. You ignored that multiple times and then did robberies. Yours is also a robbery. I don't know if we consider a crime of the century. We only found out about it. It is. It's listed as one. It like it's officially is. That's why I was like, we should do crime okay. of the century. Well, we'll note that it's also yeah. a crime of the century. But I also had a robbery I wanted to do. So. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Just just hold real quick. Are you putting your legs up? Okay. That's great. <sighs> They're not muddy at all. Um, why are you being like this? <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm a lot bitchier this episode than I, I usually am. Um, You're hitting me, too. <laughs> I don't like it. She's been so crime going on right now. She has a gun to me. <laughs> we took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see... We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So, question before we start. Okay. Uh, Have you ever seen Dog Day Afternoon? I haven't. Okay. Never even heard of it. (gasps) Oh, this is going to be exciting. Actually, no, that's Baby's Day Off. No, I don't think I've seen it. (laughs) Okay, very different. (laughs) Um, Is it, though? Yes. So, John Wachowski. I, oh, no, that's not how you say it. God damn it. I wrote it out phonetically. Watch Twix. Watch Twix. Watch Twix. Um, so, John Watch Twix was born on March 9th, 1945 in New York City to a Polish father and an Italian-American mother. His mother, Terry Basso, doted on him throughout his childhood, leading John to become, quote, confident, entitled, and unapologetic. Just like every other white man. Mm-hmm. He notably stated, quote, a man doesn't regret what he does. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Sounds um, like my brothers. <laughs> yep. John grew up in New York City, and after graduating high school, he got a job as a bank teller at Chase Manhattan Bank. There, he met a co-worker named Carmen Bifulco, the names in this, Carmen Bifulco, who later recalled their meeting as, quote, love at first sight. 
Mm. So not Carmen San Diego. Not Love nearly as Carmen. interesting. Yeah, um, John did not share this sentiment, and he showed up to their first date with two other women in town. <gasps> yeah, he reportedly told Carmen and his other dates that one of them would be his lucky bride. Oh my god, that's insane. <laughs> I know, the fucking balls on this dude. Carmen and John began dating, and they got married in oh, 1967. Yeah, she was lucky. Yeah, she was the lucky one. Uh, despite Carmen's family actually refusing to give their blessing. They're like, wow. fuck this dude. John was drafted into the Vietnam War by the United States Army soon after becoming engaged to Carmen. Okay. When John was enlisted, the Vietnam War had been raging for about a decade already. And unlike most young men who were drafted at the time, John was excited to join the fight. How long did the Vietnam War last? Like 15 years. 10 years? Yeah. 15, something like that. It was long. I thought it was like five years. No, it was long. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. I know. Why do you want to stop to look it up? I do. I'm really <laughs> shocked. Yeah. 1955. 1975? Yeah. Holy shit. Right? No wonder it was so bad. Yeah. And who won that? <laughs> Not us. Not us. <laughs> um, so he was excited. About going to Vietnam. Okay. Uh, his family was very, like, conservative, very, like, patriotic, which at the time wasn't unusual. Right. You know? He was a self-described warmonger and was more than willing to get his hands dirty for his country. Ugh, he's going to rape so many women over there. Actually not. Um, That's so he says. While at boot camp, John had an experience that would help to shape the trajectory of his life. According to John, he was pursued sexually by another recruit who he also later said was a, quote, hillbilly named Wilbur. Okay. Um, And one night he awoke to that man performing oral sex on him. John, while surprised, found that he enjoyed the act and even asked the man to keep going when he paused. After that night, John began initiating and carrying on several sexual relationships with his fellow soldiers. Okay. When he was done with boot camp, John was sent to the Da Nang Air Base in North Vietnam. In February of 1967, John's base was attacked by a rocket strike. Over 100 rockets hit the base, and he was the sole survivor. What? Yeah. This event radically shifted John's worldview and his support for the war and the U.S. military. He was discharged shortly after and married Carmen almost immediately after he returned home to New York. However, John and Carmen's marriage showed signs of trouble within the first hours after they said their vows. You mean because he's gay and has PTSD? I mean, both of those are true, but not because <laughs> but not of that. Because yeah. of that. Okay. Um, at the wedding reception, John and Carmen got into an argument about what they were going to spend their wedding money on. Multiple people witnessed the fight, and the priest actually offered to annul the marriage on the spot. Oh, my God. At their reception, yeah. Why even talk about that at your reception? I know, right? Don't you have other shit going on? In 1969, John emptied the couple's apartment and abandoned it while Carmen was out with their two children. Oh, my gosh. They had children? They had two children, yeah. She came home to a bare apartment and a note that stated, I left. Go to your mother's. (gasps) Oh. We don't like... John's not a, not a good guy. Well, I mean, I knew he wasn't going to be, but... Within one week of leaving his wife, John joined the Gay Activists Alliance, or GAA. GAA was an organization based in New York City that was founded around six months after the Stonewall riots by former members of the Gay Liberation Front. Yeah, but he didn't have to steal all their shit. 
He his just, wife's shit. Yeah. He could have just left him. Yeah, like, he could have. steal everything. No, he needed, you know, he just He needed, needed those kids' so. clothing and yeah, stuff. Yeah, right? Yeah. So GAA focused on advancing the rights of LGBTQIA people. Mm. And John was drawn to the organization, not really by the cause, but by the parties they threw. Yeah. And the dick sucking, I'm sure. Yeah. He quickly joined the GAA and was appointed as a member of the Entertainment Committee, a position which enabled him to meet and sleep with as many people as he wanted. Quote, this is a quote from John. I was a member of the Entertainment Committee, so I would meet and greet the new gay people coming into the scene. I could have sex with them quicker than anybody else because they were just coming out. Wow. Yeah. During this time, John changed his name socially to Little John Basso. <laughs> yeah. Why Basso? What is that? That's actually his mother's maiden name. Okay. But, but he a little like L-I-L? L-I- it's name? all one word. L-I-T-T-L-E-J-O-H-N. Little John. All one word. Oh, like... Yeah. um. Like the rapper. Yeah. But not Lil. Lil not Lil. Little. Mm-hmm. Little John. Um, Micropenis, perhaps? Well, that is that is his Little John. Yeah. Possessive. Right. So for the first few years of his involvement with the GAA, John ignored the political aspect of the organization entirely. He was like, I'm just here He's to like, party. I'm here for cocaine and dick. And dick. Yep. Cocaine and dick. That's what I'm here for, too. But Aren't I never all... get any. Never get you never give me any dick or cocaine. Why do I I keep coming? Um, but by 1971, it became impossible for John to continue engaging in only the social part of the GAA. Okay. Other members were organizing and taking steps to enact change while John was using his influence to bed new members. Despite walking out on his wife, John decided to take up the right to marriage cause and helped organize a protest at the wedding bureau. John was very much like, I believe in marriage. Like, if you love someone, you should marry them. But he was also just like a fucking pathological adulterer. Yeah. So two days after that protest, he met a woman who would change his life. 24-year-old Elizabeth Eden met John at the St. Anthony's Festival in Little Italy. Okay. John spotted her mingling with two priests among the crowd and was immediately smitten by her. Eden, a transgender woman, was known for commanding attention in any room she entered. Okay. She had captivating eyes and beautiful dark hair. She had been born and raised in New York City and was working as a sex worker when she met John. Uh, Okay. So he's not gay? No, well, he he refers to himself as gay, but he sleeps with everyone. He's just Good. a sex. He's a slut. Uh, he's a slut. He's That's a sexual, sexual maniac. That's his thing. So Eden was well known in the queer community, and she was admired and respected by her peers. John and Eden began getting to know each other and were soon in a relationship. Okay. According to Eden, she was impressed by John's romantic side and his pride in their relationship. He showered her with attention and gifts and proudly took Eden out on the town. Oh. Yeah. At a time when a lot of people, even if they were, you know, romantically involved with or interested in someone who was gay or transgender would conceal that fact. Yeah. He was very open. While the beginning of their relationship was fairy tale esque John's selfishness soon reared its ugly head. While John was infatuated with Eden, he did not respect her or her identity. 
John refused to refer to Eden by her chosen name or her pronouns. Eden told John that she planned to one day undergo gender confirmation surgery, and John was not supportive. Hmm. At this time, John was also still married to Carmen, legally. Despite all of these issues, John proposed to Eden, knowing that he could not marry her given her legal gender and his legal marriage. Wow. Yeah. John believed that he should be able to marry whoever he wanted, even if he was already married. In December of 1971, John and Eden married in a non-legally binding ceremony, although an ordained priest did officiate it. Actually, John's mother and Eden's father were in attendance, which people said was very unusual for Mm -hmm. the time and was like a big deal for them to have the support of their families. And the event was filmed by members of the GAA for their archives. Yeah. Although John claimed to be hopelessly in love with Eden, he often carried out relationships behind her back and even returned to his wife, Carmen, several times. What? Right? That's crazy. Yeah. Eden was emotionally and psychologically affected by John's infidelity and rejection of her identity. A few months after their wedding, the couple got into a fight which led them both to be taken to a psychiatric hospital. According to John, Eden attempted to harm herself with a kitchen knife and he wrestled it away from her, cutting his hand in the process. According to Eden, John tried to attack her with the knife. Mm. Before they could be admitted to the hospital, the couple was able to escape. This is a big thing back then because a transgender person would do anything they could not to go to a hospital. Right. Because being transgender was considered a mental illness. A mental illness. And there were a lot of really barbaric ways that they would try to quote unquote treat Treat it. Treat it. Yeah. Mainly electroshock Mm -hmm. at this period. We're a little far away from lobotomies and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, but... A lot of people would be committed. good. No, and they would be committed for life. And treated poorly. Yeah, terribly. So five months after... And even gay. I can't imagine even just being a gay person. Yeah, they weren't treated well either. But this is also right before the AIDS epidemic. Is milk later? Um, I think so. Yeah, I think that's more... A little bit later. Yeah. This is at a time where it's like right after Stonewall and before AIDS. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of momentum picking up for the LGBTQ community. Apparently life in New York City for any queer person was fucking amazing. Like, it was a smorgasbord. It was a good-ass time. Well, it's before AIDS. That's like why we're a So five months after their wedding, Eden left John. She could no longer handle the stress of their relationship. John was not accustomed to rejection, and he became obsessive in the wake of the breakup. He was determined to get Eden back and began following her to different GAA events and social gatherings. Eden asked John to stop trying to contact her and talk to her, but he refused. Despite claiming to love Eden, John continued to stalk her. The stress of John's obsession took a toll on Eden, and she became anxious, scared, and depressed. She began self-harming to cope with her feelings. Eden's friends noticed cuts on her arms, but she always laughed them off and refused to confide in them. Shortly before Eden's 26th birthday, she received a letter from John. The letter stated that Eden, quote, had 28 days to live. Each day, John sent a letter to Eden, counting down the days until he would murder her. On her birthday, on August 19th. <laughs> That's my birthday! I know. I know it is. 
love you have you and elizabeth eden have the same birthday we're the best so eden decided that if she was going to die she would die by her own hand the night of her birthday she attempted suicide by a drug overdose Someone discovered Eden and called an ambulance, which took her to Kings County Hospital. John found out about Eden's suicide attempt and went straight to the hospital, where she was being treated and remained under close watch. Eden was now in serious risk of being involuntarily admitted to the psychiatric unit and subjected to conversion therapy. Eden's attending doctors told John that Eden would likely be institutionalized for the rest of her life and subjected to electroshock therapy. Eden's suicide attempt softened John's attitude toward her. He put his anger and hurt aside and decided that he would help Eden escape the hospital. According to John, he offered two men, 18-year-old Salvatore Naturale and 20-year-old Robert Bobby Westenberg, $50,000 each to help break Eden out of the hospital. But John didn't have that money, and so he made another proposition to Bobby and Sal. John suggested that the three men could rob a bank to acquire the promised $100,000 and to possibly pay for Eden's eventual gender confirmation surgery. <laughs> So he's like, listen, I'll pay you guys to help me break her out of the hospital. And they're like, sure. And he's like, okay, but I don't have the money, so you also, also need to help need me to rob me this thing. robbery. Yeah. Jesus Which Christ. is just like, like they are getting the short end of every stick in this scenario. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So sorry. What? It's Al Pacino? Yeah. In the movie. That's incredible. Yeah. We'll talk about it. Okay. Um, okay. Sorry. <laughs> John and Bobby were certainly not criminals. Mm-hmm. I mean... I mean, everyone's a little bit of a, a criminal. Bit. New York in the 70s, yeah. yes. Um, but they're not fucking bank robbers. Yeah. yeah. No. Uh, but Sal actually had a long history of petty crime. Oh, good. But it was never anything like a bank heist. Yeah. They I mean, petty. he had, like, truancy from when he was a kid uh-huh. or, like, petty theft or whatever. Right. But nothing like this. John, being his charismatic and confident self, convinced the two other men to participate. They didn't bother to plan the robbery in detail, but did know that they would probably need guns. Yeah. They were like, I don't know, go in. Just, I was going to ask for it, you know? Show the little mm-hmm. razzle-dazzle. Yeah. They give you the money, bada-bing, bada-boom. You're done. My wife gets her dick off. Exactly. X, Y, Z. You know? So they were able to procure some firearms from several friends and acquaintances, and they got a handgun, a rifle, and a shotgun. Okay. So one gun each. Then they had to figure out how to conceal the weapons until they were inside. A the rifle bank. and a shotgun for sure is hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, gotta... And trench coats are a little suspicious. Mm, yeah, you got to put it in like a like a giant Tootsie Roll container. Stop. Wait, is that what they put it in? No, no. Very similar. <laughs> so they found an industrial sized Wrigley gum box. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I know. <laughs> so they have this big wriggly gum box, like kind of what it would be um, delivered to a store in. Yeah, yeah. You know? And John was just like, <laughs> they're going to just look at it and think that maybe we're delivering something or like maybe they're going to think it's like a Warholian art piece. <laughs> <laughs> That's You're what he's bringing thought. it to the bank. Yeah. <laughs> so on the night of August 21st, the three young men rented a room at the Golden Nugget Motel in New Jersey. 
Okay. Should we go? This part is overlooked a lot. Okay. And this is fucked up. According to John, quote, I grabbed a hold of Bobby Westenberg and I wanted to fuck him because he used to dress up as a girl. He goes, I don't want you fucking me. I said, I'm giving you $50,000 and you're going to tell me I'm not getting a fuck out of it. So then I fucked him. <gasps> yeah. Yeah. What the fuck? What the fuck? Indeed. So he just rapes this guy. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. The night before they're pulling off a heist together. <sighs> that's not a way to foster camaraderie. And I guess that's why it failed. Because <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. his butt was listen, too sore. It, it does worse than fail. Okay. So on August 22nd, the three men left the Golden Nugget Motel where they had been staying to attend a showing of The Godfather to hype themselves up. You know, it's funny. We were just talking about taking a little trip. Should we go visit the Golden Golden Nugget Nugget Motel for a week? It doesn't exist anymore. And then go watch The Godfather. Also, Al Pacino. That's funny. We love Al Pacino. Well, that's part of it Mm. because John really liked Al Pacino. So after the movie, they're hyped. They're like, Mm -hmm. fuck yeah, we're mobsters. Leave the gun, take the cannoli, all right, of that all jazz. that good stuff. Um, so they drove around, and they're like, let's look for a bank to rob. Because they hadn't chosen one. Gotcha. <laughs> so they were like, let's look at this one. And they walked into the building. But as they're walking, either Bobby or Sal accidentally dropped one of the guns, and it went <gasps> off. <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, th- the first time going into the bank, they brought the guns. Yes. They didn't case it at all. No, no casing. They were just going for it. Brilliant. Um, so John quickly picked up the gun and told Bobby and Sal to get back in the car and they sped away. They drove away. They're like, fuck that. Um, after that botched attempt, they decided on a bank in Queens. Sal was the first to enter the bank and he moved towards the security guard, careful not to drop the handgun under his arm. As he approached, though, he heard a woman call out. By sheer coincidence, Bobby's mother's best friend was at the bank, and she recognized Bobby. So she called out, and she's like, hey, what are you doing here? So they decided to abandon the robbery and try another bank after Bobby finished exchanging pleasantries with the woman. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. The trio returned to Manhattan to find another mark. They soon found a bank that seemed to be in an easy location to flee, so they went inside to scope it out this time. After deciding that it would do, they left to practice their getaway one time. They got into their car and immediately rammed into another vehicle. <laughs> immediately as they're trying <laughs> to get out. Why the city? Go anywhere. It's like, yeah. When the owner of the other car said that they should call the police to document the incident, John, Bobby, and Sal fled. Ugh. Bobby and Sal suggested that they give up at this point because, like, this is not going well. But John was like, let's just try one more time. The banks are going to close soon. Like, we've got to give it one more shot. So they They did this all in one day? This is all in one day. (gasps) Oh, my God. Um, The men pulled up in front of the Chase Manhattan Bank located at 450 Avenue P in Gravesend, Brooklyn at around 3 p.m. Shortly before entering, Bobby told John that he couldn't do it, and he left. Oh, wow. Good for him. John and Sal entered the bank. They waited until no customers were left, and then there were just employees. Mm -hmm. Like, there was a lull right before the end of the day. The remaining employees included one manager, one security guard, and five female bank tellers. 
Sal held his concealed weapon while John approached the teller's desk. He slid a note across the counter, which read, in part, I'm making you an offer you can't refuse. <gasps> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and she immediately pressed the little button. Well, well, sort of. Some I did read an article, and it was like, well, they pressed the alarm button. It's like, that's not what happened, though. Uh. Both Sal and John pulled their weapons and told everyone in the bank to freeze. The bank manager, Robert Barrett, told his employees to do as John said. John carried an empty briefcase up to one of the registers and ordered it to be opened. He packed around $38,000 in cash and $175,000 in traveler's checks into the briefcase. Satisfied, John informed the bank staff that he was going to lock them in the safe and make his getaway. He promised that if everyone cooperated, he would call the police to get them after he and Sal were home free. However, his speech was interrupted by a phone call to the manager's desk. John told Robert Barrett to answer it and act casual. The call had come from a human resources staff member who needed to ask for verbal confirmation of an employee transfer to a different branch. Barrett did not want to miss an opportunity to get help for himself, his staff, and his bank, but he knew he had to be careful. Instead of telling the caller that a robbery was in progress, he decided to tip them off in a different way. Barrett was asked to approve the transfer and responded that he was, quote, looking forward to working with her. This immediately piqued the caller's suspicion because the employee was being transferred from Barrett's branch, not to his branch. Right. The caller asked if something was wrong, and Barrett replied, very much so. Have a nice day. And hung up. <laughs> uh, yeah. HR alerted security, and before John and Sal could walk the hostages into the vault, the bank was surrounded by police officers. Wow. John and Sal locked the doors and barricaded themselves and the employees inside. John informed the staff members that they were now hostages and had to sit tight. As John and Sal surveyed the streets from the bank window, they realized that there was no chance of shooting their way out of the situation. Mm. Reporter Robert Capstadter of the Daily News heard about the unfolding situation and decided to try his luck by calling the bank directly. To his delight and surprise, John picked up. <laughs> Through talking with Capstadter, John decided that the reporter was presenting an opportunity for him to get the public on his side. With John's permission, Capstadter rushed down to the bank. Capstadter recalled, quote, I remember my first words to John were, so, how's it going? He said through clenched teeth, how do you think? <laughs> Capstetter interviewed John right then and there, and this was when John spun the version of the story that would endure. John told Capstetter that the main reason for the robbery was to pay for Eden's gender confirmation surgery. Oh. He told Capstetter that his demands included the immediate release of Eden from the psychiatric hospital and her transportation to the bank. During the interview, John repeatedly misgendered Eden and used her dead name. John said, this is a quote, but I changed the pronouns to okay. Eden's pronouns because fuck this guy. Um, John said, I love her, and she kept trying to kill herself because she wasn't happy being a man. I tried to get her the money for her birthday on the 19th, and I didn't have the money. So the next day, she took an overdose, and she died a clinical death. Then they put her in the nut house on Monday. I saw her in the nut house on Monday, and then Tuesday, I went to rob the bank. When Capstadter asked John what he loved about Eden, John replied, I say, I don't know, because if I knew why I loved her, then maybe I could stop loving her. 
It's just her. Hmm. John submitted a list of demands to the police negotiator. They included Eden's release from the hospital, as well as pizza for the hostages. Um, he also was now allowing the hostages to just roam free around. Like, they're <laughs> just, just they're just there. Yeah, free much. Yeah. They're like, finish your stuff. You have paperwork. Mm-hmm. We all have work. Well, and at this point, they were like, this guy's pretty chill. Like, he's ordering yeah. us pizza. He's doing this for person he loves. Like, right. They, they were really kind of like on his side. Right. It's kind of like, well, yeah. Yeah. John, seeing the crowd gathering, decided to endear himself to the public further and grabbed a couple of thousand dollars in cash. (gasps) He threw the wad of cash out into the crowd and people scrambled for it. Yeah, of course. Authorities quickly brought Eden from the hospital and uh, to the bank, but she was still like in her hospital gown. She had no Mm -hmm. idea what was going on. Like this was really pretty fucking traumatic for her. Because again, remember, this is a man who stalked her. Yeah. And, like, tortured her psychologically. Eden refused to approach John, but John eventually demanded she be sent in, and he publicly kissed her in the doorway of the bank. As the news spread of John's purported motivation, crowds began to gather further. There was, like, 4,000 people. Mm -hmm. That was one estimate I saw. At one point, a police officer in the crowd yelled a slur at John, prompting him to run outside and threaten the officer. <gasps> this is very New York. <laughs> yeah. Also, the uh, idea that no one shot him as he ran out. I know. Because he was just like, I'll kick your ass right now. And everyone's like, we're in a hostage yeah. negotiation <laughs> that you started. According to a reporter who was on the scene, quote, the crowd loved it. They were all rooting for John. He came out and threw away, I don't know how many dollars, a few thousand. He threw away handfuls of money up in the air, and this mob starts surging to grab the bills that were being blown down. For 14 hours, John negotiated with police. John's mother, Terry, arrived to plead with her son to end the hostage situation. Mm. Police told Terry that they considered Sal the real threat because he was brandishing a gun and John was not at this point. Uh-oh, I have a bad feeling for Sal. Yeah. They told Terry that they could save John if he cooperated. Eden remained present at John's behest but wanted no part in it. Yeah. She later told reporters that she considered John, quote, a monster. Mm. She stated, quote, John was also good-natured, but that was the problem. John and I couldn't live together because of mental problems on both sides. It would never have worked out. John was sadistic in his sex habits. He could control himself, but sometimes he went overboard with such things and he terrified me. Yeah. As negotiations dragged on, authorities promised John and Sal three plane tickets to Europe so that they could flee and take Eden with them. The FBI arrived and transported the three to JFK Airport. Upon arrival, Sal was shot and killed by an FBI (gasps) agent. Yep. Did he still have his gun? I don't know if he did or not. That's a good question. He, like, got out of the FBI van and someone who was already there shot him. He was, remember, he's 18 years old. Oh, my God. A reporter stated, quote, Sal was somebody who had a criminal record, had been in jail. He was the muscle. He was determined. He would rather die than go back to prison. He was not going. You don't know that. Yeah. He was not going to go back to prison, period. You have no idea if that's true or not. I know. Fuck you, dude. John was indicted on three counts of bank robbery and a count of abduction. He was held on $250,000 bail. According to John, he accepted a plea deal and the terms of it weren't honored when he pled guilty. So Hmm. he was like, okay, I'll agree to this. And then he was sentenced to something that was not what he agreed to. Is that legal? 
he did appeal it, appeal it, but he lost. What? Um. So I guess he was like, well, I was promised this, but that wasn't true. Oh, okay. Yeah. On April twenty third, nineteen seventy three, he pled guilty, and he was sentenced to twenty years at the Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary. Strangely, and I couldn't find the reason for this, John was released after serving just five years of Weird. a 20-year sentence. That's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. He was arrested again in 1978 for parole violations. John was released in 1984 and then again committed a parole violation, which landed him back in prison from 1986 to 1987. John was approached by filmmakers who wanted to turn his story into a feature film. He was promised a pay cut in return for the rights to the story. John agreed, and the story of his botched robbery was turned into the 1975 movie Dog Day Afternoon, starring Al Pacino and John Casale. John had several issues with the film, including his contention that the film insinuated he had, quote, sold out Sal. Hmm. He also took issue with the way his first wife, Carmen, was portrayed in the film, because in the movie, she's like pretty like homely and all of this and the the connotation is that she like pushed him to start to seeing be gay. other people yeah <laughs> it's weird but with the money that he was given from the film he and uh Eden both got money she was able to get her surgery Aww. yeah uh, so look, in the end, he did what he said he was going to do. He kinda. only had to kill an 18-year-old, basically. And go to jail. <laughs> yeah. Um, and traumatize all those people. Uh, oh, they got pizza. <laughs> they did get pizza. <laughs> they were fine. You know it was good pizza. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Eden visited John in New York about once a month for the whole time that he was out of prison. Wait, really? Yeah. Even though she said he was a monster? Yep. They remained friends. She married someone else. Oh, so they were just friends, I guess. Yeah. She married someone else and got divorced sometime in the, I think, early 80s. She got divorced. On September 29th, 1987, Eden died from AIDS-related pneumonia <gasps> at Genesee oh. Hospital in Rochester, New York. Yeah. John gave a eulogy at her funeral. John died in 2001 at the age of 60. In the year since his release, did he see nine eleven? <laughs> that's a great. That's a great question. But I know, God, now I got to look it up. <laughs> did he see nine eleven? <laughs> I just, you know, two thousand one death. Like, was it before September or after? January second. So no. Actually, wait. This says something different. Oh, I'm. I'm sorry. I guess I'm wrong. I must have mistyped 2006. So, yes, he oh, saw 9 11. He saw 9 11. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> to answer your question. But I'm glad I, I cleared that up. Yeah. So, he died in January of 2006. He was living with his mother and battling cancer when uh. he died. Uh, in September of 2013, the documentary The Dog was released using old footage of, John's, of John reminiscing on the robbery. Wow. Yeah. So this story kind of lives on through the film and the documentary, but the prevailing idea about this robbery is that it was done for this great love. Yeah, it's but like it romantic. Was. Oh, yeah. Well, so many people it, romanticize but this. He kind of was because he was originally going to pay them to break her out. Yeah, so, so that it, is it was somewhat, for something good. Yeah. It wasn't... Like, but in the movie, it's more of a, like, they 
he oh, was so in love he with this needed woman. To, yeah, that he would when do it was really like, let's break her out. And also, I guess if there's extra money, we'll get the gender reassignment exactly. surgery for her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he really was focused on like making this big romantic gesture to yeah. win her back. Because and all he this was stuff. a dick. Because he was possessive yeah. and controlling. Yeah. So, yeah. Isn't that a wild story? It is wild. Um, my story is also wild, not as wild, mm-hmm. a different wild. So I'm going to tell you about the first and only bank robbery in Mendham, New Jersey, <laughs> the town in which we are currently, currently sitting. So in March of 1960, mm-hmm. two men were sitting in a bar in Madison. The bar no longer exists. The name lost to history. We okay. don't know. And they were overheard by everyone in the bar because they're like drunk and loud talking about going into great detail about how they're going to rob a bank right not smart they were specifically talking about how they had heard that the security at the mendham branch of the morris county savings bank was lax i believe it yeah so the morris county savings bank is a chain Mm -hmm. if you will and it no longer is in mendham at least not where I don't think it's in Mendham at all. Yeah. I, I've never heard that name before. Yeah. So it's not in Mendham anymore. It was located directly behind this building called the Phoenix House. Mm-hmm. Oh, and yeah. the Phoenix House was constructed in the early 19th century, um, purchased by a man in the 20s, the 1820s, by a man named William Phoenix, hence the name. And it was first used as a boarding house. Mm-hmm. But in the 60s, the house was used as a municipal hall, which it's still used as today. I was going to say, isn't I thought it was like a historic society building. Yeah, but also yeah. like, uh, yeah. So like when they're trying to figure out, you know, they're voting on like... They do again, it at the Phoenix yeah, House? Yeah, if like the, the Dunkin' Donuts should go through. Like, all that stuff happens at the Phoenix oh, House. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know it's that. It's the municipal building, yeah. Got it. And it's right in the center of town. Uh-huh. Which town, Lucy? Mendham's I mean, a very small town. Also, I don't know if I would consider that the center of town. Would you? I don't know what else you would consider the center. I guess I just consider, like, Kings the center uh, I of town. Oh, I don't but consider that's, Kings. I that's more the outskirts. Yeah. That's, like, where the grocery store is. Yeah. And it's, like, a little strip mall. But mm-hmm. the center of town has, like, the the schools the school, there, yeah. which was where the original yeah. school was. The, the municipal the building. Horse. The bla- the mm-hmm. restaurant. Yeah. It's got all the shops. Yeah, you're right. Um, And it's got, back then, at least... I. I think, or maybe they had the apothecary back then, but at one time, Robinson's was the only... Drugstore. Yeah, and it used to be, and I think in the 60s it still was, a soda shop. So it was like a yes. more of a hopping. Yeah, we talked about that in the hometown crimes episode. Oh with yeah, Denville, where like the pharmacy a lot of the time was also a was soda also shop. a soda shop. Yeah. yeah. So basically, the Phoenix House is like on this corner, and right behind it was where the bank would have mm-hmm. been, where Emac and Bolios used to be, mm-hmm. the ice cream store. Yeah, and where uh, now to the right is a bowling alley, and then yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which that was there at the time. That bowling alley is old. Really? Yeah. I've only ever been there once. People go there. Yeah, it's an old. Well, because it's fucking fancy bowling, you have to be like a subscriber. Oh. You have to be like that. in one of the bowling leagues to bowl oh, there. So stupid. Or if you're, or you can rent it out for like birthdays and stuff. But that's it. You'd think they would want the business. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. I was like, this is fucking stupid. That is. Stupid. But it has like four lanes. I think. Yeah, like, Do you remember the candy store? I'm sorry, we're off topic now. Um, there's an antique store right next yes, to a funeral home yes, that used to be a candy, a candy store. store. So when you got out of school in elementary school, you could just walk. Yeah. 
I wasn't in I wasn't in this town in elementary school, but 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 my family lived here. So we used to walk there like Mm -hmm. when I would visit. Yeah. There's also there was a comic and toy store back there Mm -hmm. that has since closed and that's really sad. Bummer. I I, it's it's like we grew up in the eighteen nineties. I know. know. (laughs) There's the candy store, the ice cream store. Yeah. Um, and then a bunch of other stores that you never ever went into. Bailey's, which is where, you know, they do all my family's services. Yeah, they do a great job on your grandma. They did one oh my mom. Really good work. Hot. Yeah. If you're an old lady, oh you would have been She would have hard as rock. (laughs) Her waist was tiny. Yeah. Okay. So but at that time, the police didn't have a police station. They were in the Phoenix house. Okay. Okay. So a lot of people were like, yeah, it's lack security because it's How many a cops bank did we behind- have? One? Oh, my God. I was going to ask you that. How many cops do you think we had? We did have multiple cops. We had more than one. How many cops? Two. We had two cops yeah, at the time. Absolutely. There were there two was police no way officers more in Mendham. Than two. For Mendham and Mendham Township. Yeah, of course. Because when we were talking about Denville in the 50s, they had three and a half cops. Yes. Yeah. So so that day in March changed things for the bank because a bunch of people reported that these men were going to rob this bank. Because <laughs> they talked about it openly. They talked about <laughs> it openly in detail. It wasn't just like, haha, imagine if we robbed a bank. Yeah. So at the time, police chief Earl Moore had one officer, a man named James Sillow. And they were the only Wait. people in the entire Mendham Borough Police Department. And Mendham Township Police Department, your face is correct. That's your family. That's me familia, yeah. baby. That's my Solo uncle is Jimmy. Your yeah. Yes. So, <laughs> Officer James Sillo is my great uncle. I see him all the time. He's still sharp. He's quick. Yeah, he is. He later would become the chief of police. Yes. Uh, people still refer to him as the chief. He volunteers with like the fucking EMT Hell people. Yeah. I don't know. Your mom knows him. Everyone oh, knows yeah, him. Oh yeah, because my mom was on the EMT. And every squad. time people see me, and they're like, "Oh my god, you're the, you're you're Jimmy's niece." And I'm like, "I don't know who you are, lady." <laughs> yeah, you're like, "Well, you're like, like I yes. used to watch you when you were a baby." I'm like, <laughs> so I still everyone. have no idea who you yeah. are. <laughs> so he's the cop. Yeah, <laughs> and then he is the chief. So and he so the police. Uh, or the chief at the time, Chief Earl Moore, mm-hmm. actually wrote these notes on this these index cards, kind of like those boxes you would see a recipe in. You uh-huh. know, it's like the box and it has all the index cards. And he then would put that in a manila folder. And he labeled the manila folder, planned robbery of Mendham Bank. <laughs> Guess who still has that manila folder? Your Uncle Jimmy. My Uncle Jimmy. <laughs> Do we have pictures of this? Can we post these? Yeah, I can get I can get stuff from Hell yeah. Oh, I can get everything from yes. my Uncle Rich. Oh, I'll get fuck. it. So soon Chief Moore told his suspicions to the bank manager, the shopkeepers, you know, anyone on like that street to you know, just be on the lookout. Yeah. So and there wasn't anyone not interested in this, right? Because at the time there were twenty seven hundred people in Mendham, and also juicy, juicy gossip, juicy gossip yeah. in a town like Mendham. Mm-hmm. Nothing happens. There Nothing was just, happens. Back then there was fucking horses here, and like yeah. some people. This is a town it. where people don't lock their fucking doors. I know. And all oh. of a sudden there's going to be a bank robbery. Hell this yeah. is everything. I'm surprised people didn't stake it out to watch. Oh well, just <laughs> wait. So every single person at this point knew about. The robbery. Uh, the robbery plan. So 28-year-old bank manager Herbert Miller knew to be on the lookout. And at the time, like, they didn't know who these people were at the time. It was just, like, two men in a bar. Yeah. But, I mean, even now, if two people 
are walking around Mendham and no one knows who they are and they don't oh. like and they're not with family member like a family you know people are people suspicious. in Mendham know that shit it yeah. is a it's bigger than 2,700 people, but people still know, like, that's a face I've never seen before, and they're totally alone. So either they just moved in, and I have to ask. Yeah. Because you definitely know someone who lives near them. Mm-hmm. Or they're a criminal. Yeah. Or they're black. Well, I was going to say, you know, the one time- <laughs> That also draws attention. The one time my brother caught a black Uber driver in, in Mendham, he got pulled, pulled over. over. So one day, a man named William Reddick went to the bank- Asking about mortgage loans. Mm-hmm. Uh, the butcher shop across the street was owned by a man named Murph Ray at the time. And he was quick to call the bank manager to let him know that this had to be one of the potential robbers because he had never seen him before. Also, that was suspicious because Mendham is the small branch of a chain that's headquarters is in Morristown. So Which it's like right if you're going to go... To get a loan, you would go to the, like, why not go to Morristown, a town everyone knows about instead of Mendham? Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Right. But Miller already suspected them. He said Reddick was very nervous um, and, like, twitchy. The best guess as to why he was so nervous is due to the bank's interior. So it may have thrown Reddick off that the bank didn't look like an average bank instead of the sterile and impersonal bank many are used to with the counters, you know, and the pens yeah. and everything. This one was plush, I guess. It had big couches and carpets. It had pictures on the walls Aww. of families, you know, like small town yeah, shit. Yeah. There were no like ropes to section off lines. It looked like someone's home. Yeah. Just with a teller counter. Just with yeah. it, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what P-Pack Gladstone and, is Yeah, like and now. even the counter at the time, wasn't. it wasn't a long counter. It was just a desk. It was oh, two okay. desks mm-hmm. that you would go to. So it looked very much like, wait, is this someone's living room? Am I in the right spot kind <laughs> yeah. of thing? Like, okay. are they going to have money on them? Like, <laughs> is what there, is happening? Is the vault? Yeah. yeah. The vault is just a box under one of the Yes. <laughs> it's a, it's, it's a, a cookie box. It's an Amazon like... box filled with cash. <laughs> yeah. So Reddick asked some questions and then he left. Um, but they didn't really have proof that he was doing anything nefarious. So they couldn't, yeah. like, arrest him or anything. After that, the home office located in Morristown began regularly calling the Mendham branch to make sure everything was all right. Hmm. Um, Anne Neal, the only female employee in the bank, was told in advance to go to the ladies' room if Reddick ever appeared. Oh, okay. They also believed that Reddick's friend, Robert Grorgan, was the accomplice he was talking about in the bar. And so she was warned, to, if she sees him, to also go into the ladies' room. It's weird that they're just like, get in the bathroom, yeah. woman. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, stay back, yeah. bitch. <laughs> so where's an appropriate place for a woman? The, the bathroom. bathroom. <laughs> so for the next year and a half, citizens were on their toes. No way. And the gossip was spicy, hot. People would wake up wondering, is this the day the bank gets robbed? That was the excitement the of excitement the time. The excitement of the town. Oh, today's the day. <laughs> My family... Oh, right, was beside themselves with worry, thinking that Uncle Jimmy was going to have to stop a bank robbery every day. That's the highlight of his fucking career. It was the highlight yeah. of his career. So some citizens were ready to protect the bank themselves, like Eddie Fagan, the school custodian who lived across the street from the bank. And every Friday night, he would sit at his window with his carbine as a precaution due to the bank being open later on, on Fridays. 
they thought Reddick was going to attack on Fridays because that was one of the questions he asked. Um, mm. The bank had later hours on Friday. They were open until 8 p.m. And he had specifically asked about that to make sure that they were always open on eight, until 8 p.m. on a Friday. Okay. Um, do you want to know another fun fact? Yes. Eddie Fagan. Mm-hmm. Also me familia, baby. It's all connected. <laughs> Wait, really? How? Yeah. What is he to you? Um, He is my... It's my grandma's cousin's family, the Fagans. Really? Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's right, because your grandma... Well, no. My grandma's a Cillo. Her uh-huh. cousin, uh-huh. is a girl, got married to a man. They're the Fagans. Fagans. Oh, God. So I'm, I'm related to the family. Fagans and the Cillos. So also the Fagans, the people who own the liquor store in town, uh-huh. the Fagans, he just died not too long ago. Don't worry, I wasn't that R. close. Um, <laughs> R.I.P. So now it's like, oh. We used to be able to go there and like we would know him and sometimes yeah. he'd give us a little extra something. something but uh-huh. now it's not owned by them. Okay, so your entire family is trying to stop. <laughs> yes, <from> my entire- <laughs> more of my family comes up. Yeah. Just wait. Okay, so <clears throat> in October of 1961, uh, the police decided to finally do something. Mm. So Officer Jimmy Sillo, who was posted at St. Joe's Rectory. Rector. Rector. I barely know her. That's what he said, I'm sure. Um, He went undercover as a house painter. And he would climb up the ladder. Because from the ladder, you could see the bank, right? From the front of the church. He would climb up the ladder. He'd put his gun in the, the gutter. And he would paint the church. There's a plaque at the church that thanks him because he painted the entire church. On a stakeout. Waiting for the, yeah. Yeah. So every time we go to the church, every time he goes, you know, I painted that. That's very funny. Yes. (laughs) It is very (laughs) funny. very, very funny. Um, So the Menem Police Department thought they still, you know, those two men. Yeah. Thought that they might need a little extra help. So they enlisted the help of the only, oh, sorry, sorry. The Mendham Township did have their own police officers. They okay. had their own chief one. and mm-hmm. one police officer. Yeah. So they enlisted the help of the township and got one more officer, Frank Garrity. Also related to you. Also related to me. <laughs> <laughs> this one's God, a little I'm bit more far off. The Garrities, I think, are like my mom's second cousin. Oh, okay. the Garrys. So they're, they're like further, further off, but also, yes. Okay. Amazing. So on October 17, 1961, a whole 18 months after Rhetoric and Grogan called in, or a- after the bar, Rhetoric and Grogan called in a fake bomb threat to the local school to serve as a distraction for the police. Now, the school, you could throw a stone from, from the top. bank yeah, to, to the, the school. school. So there was, it was no reason to do that. No, they really should have done it. Well, Mountain View might not have existed. I don't think it was there then, yet. So. But they also determined, the police determined that it was a fake threat as well because I guess of the placement that they said the bomb was, like that wasn't a place in the school. So they looked there, like they looked nearby it, like where it would have been. But so they fucked that up. Yeah, it was like saying, "Oh, it's on the library on the second floor, but there is no library second floor," like something like that. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have the cover to go into the bank, so they they didn't they didn't do it. Yeah. (laughs) So the next day, they skipped the fake bomb threat, and Mm -hmm. they were like, "We're just gonna go straight in." Okay. Well, the butcher noticed the robber's car parked across the street on October eighteenth, nineteen sixty one. And immediately called Chief Moore. 
But the line was busy. Oh. Oh. So coming up with a plan, the butcher gave a bag of bones to a customer, Mary Casillo, as a cover to send her to the police station, which again was across the street at the Phoenix house. To say that she had found bones? No. <laughs> like as a like oh go like carry this next door so the robbers don't think you're just going there with yeah. nothing. It looks like you're trying to bring them something, you know. Meat? No. Yeah, like meat or bones or whatever. Yeah. Just like have a bag of something. I thought you were going to say so she could hit them with no, a bag like, of bones. So go across the street and tell the police that that's what's happening. Okay. So um and while going into the back or to the back of the building to toss the wrappings from his sandwich for lunch into the incinerator, Miller saw Miller, the bank uh, manager, saw the robbers drive by. And he was like, it's go time. Fucking Hell go yeah. time. Everyone's been waiting. For so this. he ordered Ann Neal to lock herself in the bathroom and he just waited. He was like, let's fucking go. She's like, God damn it. How many She's false like, alarms? Can't I leave? I, I She's can't like, go. do you know how many hours I've waited in this fucking bathroom? <laughs> so when Redick and Grogan entered the bank, there was still a civilian finishing up some business. Mm. And under the guise of opening an account, the criminal pair waited until he had left the building before Grogan pulled out a 13 or nope, a 38 caliber revolver and pointed it at Miller. Mm. Shortly after the robbers entered the bank, uh, Miller began stuffing bills into a Federal Reserve bag, and the home office in Morristown called. Ooh. So they figured out pretty quickly what was happening. Um, and while Grogan had motioned for Miller to answer the call, Redrick didn't see his partner motion for him to answer the call. And so he panicked and he punched him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking idiot. Very he funny. panics and he's just like, whoa! Yeah. <laughs> what kind of a panic response is yeah. that? <laughs> so meanwhile, outside, the police were getting frantic <laughs> because 35 women from the Mendham Garden Club began filling up the Phoenix house. Oh, God. Guess who was in the Mendham Garden Club? Your relatives. One of my relative, baby! My Aunt Anna. <laughs> yeah. She was in the club. So, so she was there. She was there. And they had planned... So... They were like, you have to leave. There's a bank robbery next door. And, and they this were like, the fuck you, station. we have Garden Club. And they were like, yeah. They literally were like, we had planned this yes. for weeks. <laughs> we have plans. Um, so it took several minutes for the cops to get out of the <laughs> Phoenix house and over to the bank. Amazing. Um, and the men insisted they leave, like I said, but they said they wanted to see what happened. And that they had planned their gardening club for weeks. So once the robbers had the cash, they took Miller and another employee, a boy employee, obviously, because he wasn't in the bathroom, to a small <laughs> supply closet and attempted to tie them up. However, Redrick, who was tying them up, couldn't figure out how to do it properly. Ugh. And so eventually, both of the employees, Miller and this employee, Bud, just held the ropes and pretended that they were tied up because they felt bad because he was getting angry. He couldn't figure it out. That's really fucking so they wrapped it around their This whole thing is really like... fucking stupid. You know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> so upon exiting the bank, Chief Moy Moore pointed his carbine at the robbers and told them to surrender. Reddick immediately began running towards the getaway car <laughs> while loudly shouting that he had nothing to do with the robbery. Oh he was simply at the bank to cash a check. 
<laughs> he was those. immediately called by my uncle. Mm-hmm. Grogan took the chance to run back into the bank. When Chief Moore demanded that he come back outside, he did. And when he was told to raise his hands in the air, he hesitated. So Chief Moore fired a warning shot above his head. Mm. Grogan dropped the bag of money and immediately raised his hands into the air. <laughs> the amount of money they stole added up to $10,000 in cash. That's a lot. After being handcuffed, they were led back to the Phoenix house through the crowd of people and the gardening club. People were stopping because there's a stoplight right there. Yes. People were getting out of their cars. They were parking into the streets. They to were see like, what was, they were like, it's finally They're here. like, it's go time, yeah. baby. Yeah. Like, the like shops were closing and running out in the street. So there's like hundreds of people this. on the road. Yeah. Oh, so Rhetoric and Grogan were both sentenced to jail time, although I can't find anything about their exact sentence anywhere. Uh-huh. And when asked about his experience, Miller commented that being punched in the face wasn't that bad. However, he never wanted to have to wait that long for something to happen as long as he lived. <laughs> Because he had to wait 18 (laughs) months. That's crazy. Um, So the case, like I said, is the case of a century because, okay, so the case has been deemed both the dumbest robbery in history and the worst robbery of the century. I mean, yeah. It's been reported on internationally about how stupid it was. I even have an interview of my Uncle Jimmy dubbed over because it's uh, in Japanese. (laughs) talking about the robbery we have like clips about how my uncle helped like save nendum even though it was like the dumbest whatever yeah Yeah. and eventually life magazine would deem this case the worst robbers in the history of the united states oh my gosh that was amazing so good that was so good (laughs) i'm so glad that what happened was it were you talking about crime or something and your I was uncle talk- brought it no, up? No, I was talking about crime and Emily brought it up. I think we were talking about cops in general. Like yeah. something happened. And she was like, oh, well, you know, the only reason Uncle Jimmy eventually became chief is because he stopped that bank robbery. And I was like, what are you talking like, about? what bank robbery? And like I had heard him say over and over again, right, oh, I painted this church. Oh, I painted. But he's been going to the church since he was a baby. So I thought it was one of those things where he was just bragging because he volunteered to paint the church. Like, yeah. I didn't ever ask. And so she told me the story he, and was like. He left out the best part of that story. Yeah. No. He was just like, why would he I painted just say this I church. Paint, why wouldn't he say, I painted that church on a stake? Yeah, no, it's just I painted it. And it's like, okay. Way to bury the fucking yeah. lead. So so she told me about it, and she had done some of her own research, so she sent me that. And then she asked her dad about it, and he was like, oh, yeah, I have all that stuff somewhere. So he has all the, like, clips and the videos. And I think if my Uncle Jimmy doesn't have that, the robbery notes i think he might if he doesn't you know what i mean like that is amazing yes so it's like a hometown crime that but my family fucking family directly tied to everyone they were in, in the gardening your club family. they were the cops they were the, the yeah. guy on the stakeout across the street all of it the fuck and it happened like two blocks away from my family home that's so cool right isn't yeah. that a cool story <gasps> That's why I was so excited to tell you about it. Oh I was my like, God. it's just, I'm it's all of my so family. I'm glad you did. Yeah. Oh my it's gosh. so good. Best. I love this. Yeah. I love this. So, I know. It was um, really good. Oh, it was perfect. And I bet no one else has covered it. I bet you not, even though it's the the dumbest robbers in history. Exactly. The Life magazine. Yeah. I mean, both of ours were pretty dumb fucking robberies. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean. These guys are oh so Oh my stupid. gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was amazing. That's so good. Okay. 
think that's it for this one, I right? Think it is. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we are Helen High Horror on everything except Twitter. On Twitter, we're Hell High Horror. Mm-hmm. I am Austin Castell on Instagram. I'm Hyatt's Austin on uh, TikTok and Twitter. I am Reparata Ann on Twitter. Uh huh. And I am. And follow me on Twitter because my tweets are fire, okay? And everyone thinks they're so funny when I say them out loud and no one ever likes them or retweets Reppy them. Reppy is or once again asking you to follow her. Yeah, Twitter. and I'm like mad about it, okay? And don't just follow me. You better fucking like my shit and retweet it, okay? Because I'm hilarious. And then I'm Reppy Like Peppy on Instagram and on TikTok. Yay. La, 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 la. Okay, um, yeah, you can email us at HelenHighHorror at gmail.com. Yep, um, yep, this yep. You is... can come murder us. No, please don't. Um, this is the second episode of the new year. There will be mm, more to come. Yes, the first one was Christmas. It was it supposed was. to come out before. It, it's fine. We won't talk about it. That's fine. We'll um, talk about it. <laughs> okay, um, well, that is it for this one. Happy hauntings, everyone. Bye. Bye. At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org.